hope. When you hear that word, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Maybe the first thing that pops into your mind is a word or idea that is often associated with hope. Words like eternity, longing, waiting. Or maybe you immediately think of something you are hopeful for. A spouse, a house, a new job, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a new pet, a completed degree. Or maybe your thoughts wander when you hear the word hope. Maybe they wander into the pains and the uncertainties and the fears of this life. I hope I will get through this cancer treatment. I hope that I'll carry this baby to full term. I hope I'll keep my job. I hope my unbelieving family members will turn to Christ before their last breath. I hope my doctor's appointment results are gentle on the heart and the mind. Or maybe the first thing that comes into your mind when you think of the word hope is hope's antonym. It's opposite, wishful thinking, fear, or pessimism. See, no matter what immediately comes to your mind when you hear that word, this is certain. Hope is a loaded word. It's a loaded word. And it's often misinterpreted or misunderstood. So what is biblical hope? When we hear that word, what should come to our minds? How does the word of God inform, shape, and even challenge our understanding of hope? Well, this morning we're starting an eight-week occasional series in 1 Peter titled Pilgrim Hope. And it's my desire that we would answer these questions as we journey through the book over those next eight weeks. So please open your Bible to 1 Peter. You'll find the letter right after James and right before 2 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from under the seat in front of you. There should be one there. You can find 1 Peter in the New Testament. I'll be reading out of the ESV translation, the same translation as our chair Bible. This is God's good and living word. We're going to be reading 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 12. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about that grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. He is worthy to be praised. Let's say that together. He is worthy to be praised. Amen. Let's, let's pray before we work through this text. Father, we praise you for your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would turn the lights on in our hearts and our minds. We ask that we would not just be informed by your word, but that we would be transformed by it this morning. Cause us to behold the risen Christ afresh. And Lord, I ask that you would strengthen your weak servant to the task of proclaiming your word this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's the name of Christ that we pray, amen. Well, before we work through our text, I want us to take a brief snapshot of who wrote the letter, when the letter was written, and why the letter was written. As we just read there in verse 1, the letter is penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by Peter, who identifies himself as an apostle or messenger of Jesus Christ. This is the same Peter who was called by Jesus while he was a fisherman to be a fisher of men in Matthew 4. This is the same Peter who boldly declared That Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God in Matthew 16. This is the same Peter who denied Christ three times in Luke 22. But was gloriously assured and secured by Jesus three times in John 21. This is the same Peter that according to tradition was crucified upside down in Rome for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter was well acquainted with Jesus and well acquainted with grace and with grief. 
And we know that this letter is written by Peter during his lifetime, before his crucifixion. Most likely sometime between 62 and 63 A.D., before the great season of persecution that came under Roman Emperor Nero. Well, there are many themes woven together in the beautiful tapestry of this letter, but one consistent thread that runs through it is hope. And this is a hope that we will see over the course of this book and over the course of this series, that it's a hope that's grounded in Jesus a hope that is objective, tangible, firm. A hope that speaks into pain and suffering and anxiety. A hope that reforms and reorients our understanding of God, the church, holiness, submission and authority, even marriage and pastoral care. And it brings to the forefront a hope that fuels Christians on a pilgrimage to their eternal home. So let's press into the letter. If you're taking notes this morning, here's the main point of verses 1 through 12 of chapter 1. Rejoice with living hope in the God of our salvation. Rejoice with living hope in the God of our salvation. Salvation, And in order to declare this boldly to God and about who God is, on our pilgrimage heavenward, Peter wants us to grasp three things. Our identity in verses 1 through 2. Our inheritance in verses 3 through 5. And our inexpressible joy in verses 6 through 12. So, Point one, our identity. Let's look once again at verses one through two. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, when we typically receive a letter, we just kind of roll right on past the introduction, don't we? We want to get to the good stuff, the body of the letter. But we ought to stop and sit and sip from the well of this greeting for just a moment. Because after stating who he is, Peter states who he is writing to. And he is writing to Christians, the church, not just to Jewish converts, but to Gentiles primarily. And we recognize that he is writing to both Jews and primarily Gentiles by verse 18, a key verse, verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter writes to those ransomed from their futile ways inherited from their forefathers. Peter certainly wouldn't speak of Israel's forefathers Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in such a flippant and dismissive way. And so we recognize that Peter is writing to the whole church. Those there in verse 1 and 2, as we just read, those who are elect, exiles, and dispersed. Those three go together. But they're also foreknown by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and elected for obedience to Christ. 
and sprinkled by his blood. Those second three also go together. So let's look at these. First, they're elect. When we write a letter or an email, we typically write at the top, hi, so-and-so, or dear, so-and-so. We start with the name, who they are. And here, Peter begins with the elect, dear elect. And he begins with election, that doctrine that God has sovereignly and unconditionally elected his people to salvation. Over the years, I've heard things by well, well well-intentioned godly people that we shouldn't emphasize doctrine like election. We shouldn't emphasize predestination. These words are minor in the scriptures and we shouldn't major in the minors. But Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying something quite different. For he grounds this letter of encouragement. He grounds it in election, in the undeserved mercy of God. See, though election is difficult for our minds to grasp, and there's much mystery in the salvation of God, election isn't divisive, nor is it minor. No, it's biblical, and it's assuring for the believer. It's assuring for us, beloved. And it lies at the foundation of our identity as Christians. Well, Peter presses on. Second, he writes to them as exiles. You may have heard the song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Okay, it's kind of a classic. (laughs) If Peter wrote this greeting to song... This that lyric would have just popped right up. <laughs> that lyric would have been the outcome. He writes to them as elect exiles, strangers, aliens, temporary residents that are far from their homeland. And this word exile or sojourner is rich with biblical meaning. For Abraham called himself an exile and a sojourner amongst the Hittites back in Genesis chapter 23. The pastoral author of Hebrews 11 rounds that truth out when he says that all the forefathers from Abel all the way to Abraham and beyond were aliens and sojourners on this earth. See, God's people, including us, have always been exiles, strangers in this world, citizens of a a different kingdom of heaven, as Paul states in Philippians 3. Sojourners on a pilgrimage to a homeland and a celestial city whose designer and builder is God. And I wonder how this exile language hits you this morning. The language is meant to disturb the comfortable, isn't it? Do you live as an exile in this world? Does your view of finances, career, family, property, possessions reflect that this is not your eternal home? Or are these means to an end of making this world your home? Living as an exile, beloved, living as a stranger in this world is integral to our identity as Christians. 
So take stock. Well, third, they are also dispersed. And this, this word dispersed or diaspora in the Greek is twofold. It is both geographical and spiritual. In its original context, Peter is writing to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is the region of modern-day Turkey. But history has shown that this diaspora would spread far beyond this region due to the persecution that would come under Nero and further persecution beyond that. And so we must grasp the full scope of this language. For Peter is writing to the church, again, Jews and Gentile converts scattered throughout the world. But he, but he states more. He, he calls them foreknown by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and elected for obedience to Christ and sprinkled by his blood. Again, these three are meant to be, to be seen as going together. Did you notice the Trinitarian structure there? Father, Son, Spirit. Peter here is upholding the God of our salvation. Well, 2022 is upon us and the New Year mottos are in full blossom. My favorite that's repeated every year is new year, new you. New year, new you. But we all know that it's more like new year, same old you. Right. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't mean to say this in a fatalistic way or in a discouraging way. Uh, nor do I say this ignorant of the truth that people do change. People change for better or for worse. And the new year is a great time to establish new and better patterns, new and better routines. The reason I say this is that there are certain aspects of who we are that are ingrained in our identity from the Lord. And so fundamentally, if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, then that is an unchanging and assured reality. And it's not just part of your identity, it is your identity. And so Peter here in this salutation is making sure that the church, come what may on their heavenward pilgrimage, knows that their identity is firmly rooted in the God of their salvation. This is what we see here. Peter is reminding us that no matter what, that God has chosen his, his people chosen us before the foundation of the world, that he is sanctifying us by the Spirit, progressively conforming us into the image of the Son, and that we are saved for obedience, having been sprinkled in the blood of Christ. This is our full-orbed salvation right here, friends, right here. This is ground zero of our hope. This is ground zero of our hope in Christ, a hope that is based in God the Father who has foreknown and planned salvation, a hope that lies in God the Spirit who has applied that salvation to sinners in need of grace, and a hope that is based in God the Son who has accomplished salvation in and through the gospel, in and through his shed blood sprinkled upon the people of God for the forgiveness of sin. Oh, beloved, because of this, we can rejoice. 
Because of this, we can rejoice with living hope in the God of our salvation and walk in obedience to God and his word in the midst of all circumstances of this life, though imperfectly. We can walk with obedience, leaning upon the perfectly obedient son, Jesus Christ. The one who is, as Peter states there at the close of verse 2, the saving grace and peace of God multiplied and lavished upon us. Beloved, in Christ and in this salvation, our hope is found. In this God, our identity is found. And that's why Peter starts here. But he's just getting started. He's just, getting, he's just fired up the engine. So we got, we got a lot more to cover here. Point two, our inheritance. We're going to look now at verses three through five. Point two, our inheritance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation. Ready to be revealed in the last time. Here in verse 3, it's almost like Peter's on a rooftop declaring, shouting, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, in response to this deep theology that we see in verses 1 through 2, Peter just abounds in doxology. And we should pull a page from his book here. All theology, all study of God ought to lead to doxology, the praise of God. And here, Peter praises the Father for what he has done through the Son. For through Jesus, he has poured undeserved mercy upon his people, causing them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. See, humanity is born into death. But by God's grace and by his abundant mercy in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, God's people are reborn into life. And when Peter says born again, he is speaking of regeneration. And regeneration is a pretty churchy word. So let me, uh, let me kind of describe it here for a moment, define it. Regeneration is re, again, and generation, born. So the word just means born again or reborn. The Puritan John Flavel in his work, The Method of Grace, helpfully speaks of regeneration in this way. Regeneration expresses those supernatural, divine, new qualities imparted by the Spirit to the soul, which are the principle of all holy action. Beloved, regeneration is fully God's work of supernatural, sovereign, and saving mercy. And that's what Peter is driving at here in verse 3. God has caused his people to be born again to a living hope. Some translations say God has given new birth. Peter's point stands. Salvation is fully of God. It's a popular image to illustrate the way God regenerates and saves and gives newness of life by talking about the sinner as a person who is in the ocean and he's stranded and he's striving 
swimming in, in the ocean. And God, in the nick of time, throws a life preserver. And the man, with all of his might, grabs hold of the life preserver with all of his might and is saved. But this, this is an unbiblical illustration. Scripture tells a different story. According to Scripture, man is born in sin. We're dead in sin and our hearts are stone. We can read of this in Ezekiel 36, Ephesians chapter 2, Romans 1, 3, and 6, and, and so many others in both the Old and New Testament. And so according to the word, a sinner is a drowned person. A sinner is a drowned person. There is no treading, no striving, no self-justifying, but God, Father, Son, and Spirit according to his great mercy, scoops down to the ocean floor and saves his son, saves his daughter by breathing new life into him or her and declaring them a new creation, adopting them into a new and better family and giving them an eternal inheritance. How marvelous and how wonderful is that? In a modern world, we don't typically use that word, inheritance. We typically use the word like will or, or trust, testator or beneficiary. Those are our typical words. But here, here's the point that Peter's making. When we are born again, we become beneficiaries of a perfect and eternal inheritance. Peter walked with Christ he heard his teaching day in, day out. And he would have heard Jesus' teaching recorded in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But Peter is talking about more than just treasure. He is talking about a future inheritance. So much more. An inheritance that is described there in verse 4 as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Remember, Peter's writing to the church, elect exiles of the diaspora. He is writing to both Jewish converts and primarily Gentile converts. He's writing to the whole people of God, the elect from all nations, tribes, and tongues. He is writing to God's people, past present and future, and he is assuring us, even as we live as nomadic vagabonds, he is assuring us sojourners, exiles, strangers in this world with no lasting land or home to call our own, he is assuring us that we have an inheritance that is kept in heaven. And it is a perfect inheritance, and it is being guarded through faith even now as we gather together. Peter is speaking of a heavenly inheritance that is far more precious than we could ever imagine. A complete and glorified salvation. A promised land, a home, a city whose designer and builder is God. An inheritance that includes the promises made in the Old Testament and the promises kept in Christ in the New. And this inheritance cannot be lost, beloved. This inheritance cannot die. This inheritance cannot be stolen. This inheritance cannot erode or disintegrate like sand on the seashore. No, it's inheritance that will last forever. 
And it is being kept now in heaven, kept until the last day when salvation is finally and ultimately revealed when Christ returns. Oh, do you look forward to that day, beloved? Do you look forward to that day with living hope? See, what we believe about our future inheritance on the last day parallels parallels what we believe about our present hope today. And so until that day, there's a twofold caution in this section of the passage. The first caution is to not have an over-realized hope and inheritance, which really is the pursuit of heaven on earth. This so easily happens when, when the church places its hope in politics, in free states, in personal rights. When we do this, we attempt to bring heaven to earth, to attain an advance on that future inheritance, future inheritance today. This is to attempt to live your best life now and to indulge in the hashtag blessed life now. But the second cautionary fold is to not have an underrealized hope and an inheritance, which is to have a malnourished understanding of how hope has come and broken into this life through Christ already. And this so easily happens when the church discounts the power of the gospel and grows lazy and distracted, unable to fix its gaze heavenward. And when we do this, we trade our future inheritance for cheap, quick-fix, fast food happiness. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, we simply fool around with drink and sex and ambition with, with and when infinite joy or hope is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. So where, where do you lean, Christian? Do you have an over-realized or an underrealized hope today. I'm not saying that an earthly home is a bad thing or earthly possessions are bad things. They are gifts from the giver of all gifts. And a home and, and possessions can be used as means to glorify God and to serve not only our blood family, but our other blood family, the church. I'm saying that we should beware of making it an idol as we live as elect exiles in this life. Again, what we believe about future inheritance parallels what we believe about hope today, and that informs the way that we live and the decisions that we make today. Well, thus far in our time this morning, Peter has called us to rejoice with living hope in the God of our salvation, and he has caused us to look at our identity and our inheritance. And now Peter wants us to turn our gaze toward our inexpressible joy. Inexpressible joy. And that takes us to point three, our inexpressible joy, verses 6 through 12. Let me read those. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What is Peter's response to this eternal inheritance that is kept and guarded in heaven? What is Peter's response to this salvation that has come to elect exiles to the church? It's joy. Joy is his response. But this is a joy that's, again, more than mere emotion. It's a joy that can't be described by human words. It's a joy that's inexpressible, meaning it's, it's a happiness and a blessedness that transcends this life. It's a joy that is based in living hope and is cause for much, much rejoicing. And in these verses, that word joy in verse 8 functions like a hinge. On the one side, Peter writes of rejoicing with inexpressible joy in the midst of trials, grief, and suffering. We see this in verses 6 through 9. On the other hand, Peter writes of an inexpressible joy that the prophets looked forward to a joy that has come to suffering exiles in Asia Minor and beyond to the church today through the preaching of the good and joyful news of the gospel. We see this in verses 10 through 12. So let's look at these. First, let's look at an an inexpressible joy in the midst of trials there in verses 6 through 9. As we just read, Peter starts with the words, in this you rejoice. Another rendering of the Greek there could be, this is why you rejoice. See, in light of the five previous verses, in light of God's glorious salvation to his people, in light of God's glorious inheritance for his people, the church can rejoice even as she walks through trials and tests, knowing that she is being refined and purified like gold. And the result of those trials will be praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ on the last day when he returns. See, there's a pattern to the Christian life, and it's been talked about from this pulpit. First suffering, then glory. First suffering, then glory. This is the the pattern of the cross. This is a life marked by Christ. The early church at this point in redemptive history was not under Nero's persecution yet nor the brutal persecutions that came after. But the church was under fire. They were under fire due to their allegiance to a crucified and resurrected king, their allegiance to Jesus, and their claim to being citizens of another kingdom, of another, of another place, of another region, of heaven. And therefore, they were persecuted. They experienced firsthand the words of Christ, if the world hates you, 
If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Christ knew what it was to endure suffering, trials, and grief. And he knew that his body, his church, his band of elect exiles in this life would experience the same. I don't know if you've noticed, but authentic Christianity is not popular. It's not in vogue to be a Christian, to live a life of ongoing repentance and faith in Christ. And just as the early church was persecuted, we will be persecuted for our faith. We'll be hated. And that's, that's to be expected. Trials have come. And trials will continue to come. This is the cost of the Christian life. This is the cost of, tra- of taking up our cross daily. God does have a plan for your life. And it includes suffering, grace, joy, and grief. And here's the lesson I, wanna, I want us to take away from 1 Peter in these verses. Our understanding of our identity in Christ our understanding of salvation in Christ, our understanding of our inheritance in Christ, our theology of hope and joy in Christ is the same theology and hope and joy that we will take into our next inevitable trial. Be it family trauma or the loss of a precious family member to either death or estrangement. The ongoing struggle of chronic illness or a mental or emotional disorder or the trial of of a necessary surgery or persecution at work for the sake of the gospel or the grief of losing friendships for the sake of Christ. The theology, hope, and joy that we take into those trials will determine our posture in the midst of those trials, in the midst of those tests. So Peter's encouraging us to have a theology of hope and joy and an understanding of God that can withstand the rain, that can withstand the storm when it comes. And so may we, with God's help, recognize that trials are means to God's ends of refining us and sanctifying us. May we, like Christ, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, his ultimate trial. May we endure trials and tests with an objective future hope and joy as we live and walk as pilgrims together, as a church here at EBC, and continue to journey together to our eternal home. For it is only with eternity in view that our present trials are but a momentary affliction. It is only with eternity in view that we can see our present trials as a refining fire. It's only with eternity in view that we can see Christ with the eyes of faith, recognizing the truth of verses 8 and 9, that though we have not seen Christ, we love him. And though we do not now see him, we believe in him. It is only with eternity in view that we can press on and rejoice with the living hope and inexpressible 
joy. For on the last day, we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the complete salvation of our souls. Beloved, we are almost home. So let's press on with inexpressible joy. Second, we see that Peter kind of lays out the inexpressible joy of expectation and fulfillment in verses 10 to 12. You know, fulfillment is always better than expectation, isn't it? Just ask a spouse on their honeymoon or a new mom and dad or someone who finally reaches their destination after a very long journey. Fulfillment is always better than expectation. Always is. And with fulfillment, most often comes joy. And Peter's driving at that. But it almost seems out of the blue here that Peter all of a sudden starts talking about prophets and prophecy and what was revealed to them about Christ's suffering and glory that followed and how they were serving elect exiles centuries before they were even born. It, it seems a little disjointed, kind of strange. But I want us to see that what Peter is doing here is sheer brilliance. Again, Peter is, is writing to scattered Christians of that day and today. And thus far, we have been reminding, he has been reminding us of our identity, our inheritance, and how we can rejoice in the God of our salvation, even in the midst of refining trials and inexpressible joy. And he closes this section in verses 10 through 12 as he reminds us of the hope-filled privilege that we have to live in light of Christ and the good news of the gospel. Things that prophets and angels long to look at. See, the prophets lived and penned scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They penned writings like Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 53 in expectation of a future Messiah. And they searched, inquired, and watched for the time that Messiah would come and suffer and enter into glory. They, were, they, they stopped and they, they searched and they inquired and, and watched for what to write under the inspiration of the Spirit, as they wrote of that future Messiah. And Peter is telling us that they did these things for the good of the people of God in the future. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? And so these verses are meant to encourage the church that even though they are scattered and without a lasting home on this earth, that even though they are persecuted and they're grieved by trials, that they live beyond expectation. And they live in light of the fulfillment in Christ, in light of the joyful good news of the gospel of Christ crucified and resurrected, a joy, a status, a privilege that's even beyond the angels. Oh, beloved, can it get any better than that? Can it? Can it get any better than that? I don't think so. Can it get any better than to live in the light of the gospel today? To live not in expectation, but in fulfillment, north of the resurrection. What a privilege. What a privilege and what an inexpressible joy. And Peter is reminding us of that privilege. And that that privilege ought to fuel us and fill us with a living hope in the Christ-exalting, inexpressible joy that can only come through him in all circumstances of life. All of them. Well, we should close. Maybe you're here today and you're living a life of unmet expectations, 
failed expectations and fleeting joy. Maybe, you, maybe you're here today and you're without hope. Maybe you've grown up in the church or you're relatively new to the church. Maybe you don't like God and you're here under compulsion. Well, friend, you were made by God. You were made by God and you were created to find your identity and your joy in him. You were made for worship, made to worship Christ alone for salvation. And here's the good news that Peter is writing of here. Here's the good news of the gospel, and it's this, that Jesus was born of a virgin. We just celebrated that a handful of days ago. He took on flesh and dwelled among us. He set aside his splendor, his place in heaven, and he entered this place. He lived a sinless life before God and man. And he went to the cross where he was killed as he took on the weight of your sin and mine upon himself. And then three days later, he got up from the dead so that all that turn to him in repentance and faith can live with a tangible hope and an inexpressible joy. And so, friend, Repent of your sin, all of those ways that you have looked for identity and joy in the things of this world and turn to Christ. Turn to the one who has offered salvation and true and lasting joy. If you have questions about that, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I'd love to talk with you more about that. But for you, Christian pilgrims here at EBC, I pray that you would continue to find your identity in Christ. I pray that you would fix your gaze on that eternal inheritance set before you. And I pray that you would continue this journey heavenward. That you would continue it with an inexpressible joy, rejoicing with living hope in the God of our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your word, for your salvation that has come to sinners in so much need of it. Lord, we thank you for that future inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear today afresh the good news of what you have accomplished in the Son and what you will do on that last day in the Son. Lord, give us a living hope until that day for our good and for your glory. And it's in your son's name that we pray, amen.